Welcome back to another episode of Real Estate Investing Unscripted, where we get real with real estate investors and other experts throughout the industry. I'm your co-host, Brendan Bennett, and with me is your other co-host, David Dugan. David, what's going on today? Uh, what's going on is we have a fun guest on the show today, Craig Curlop. And Craig is uh, hes a man of many things. So among his accolades, he's a published author, he's a real estate investor, and uh, he also is growing and leading a team of real estate agents. And Craig, I'm going to go ahead and let you chime in here and fill in the gaps that I may have missed. So first, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, guys. You know what I'm just realizing is that we all have alliterative names, which means we're all going to be very successful, good looking and have great facial hair. So thanks for having me on. But yeah, so for those that don't know me, uh, Craig Curlop, I'm the Fi guy on Instagram. And, uh, you know, it all kind of started. I I first was a real estate investor. That was my first thing. I, I bought my first house hack about six and a half years ago. I then realized that there weren't many agents out there that knew how to help investors. They didn't know how to run the numbers. They didn't know how to do the things that an investor cares for. And so I got my real estate agent's license and started helping house hackers and investors in the greater Denver area start buying properties for, for cash flow and for appreciation and, and for things that investors like. And then, you know, lo and behold, I, I then wrote a book called The House Hacking Strategy, which uh, was published by Bigger Pockets, which many of you may have heard of. And, you know, that's kind of where my career took a big inflection point as well, was writing the book, becoming kind of the quote-unquote expert, if you will, on house hacking. And, you know, now fast forward six years later, we've done this six times, eight if you include two that my wife did that I was a part of. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's just changed our life drastically. That's awesome. Craig, congrats on the book, by the way. Great book. I've read it myself. I purchased that book for two or three friends that have been in that situation where they're trying to buy their first property. They don't want to dive in too deep, kind of want to, you know, tiptoe into real estate investing. So would recommend it to uh, to anyone listening. But question that I've always had around that book and, and kind of how you've gotten into the bigger pocket space. Did were you affiliated with bigger pockets prior to writing the book? Was it the other way around? Did they find you? Uh, what's kind of the background of how that relationship started with you guys? Yeah. So at the time I was actually working at bigger pockets. And so I got a job there. And when I first started, Scott Trench, who was the director of operations, now CEO, asked, uh, he, he had come out with his book, Set for Life. And I told him, I was like, I want to write a book someday. And he's like, okay, well, you need to write for the Bigger Pockets blog on your own time for as long as forever. And then maybe someday you'll get an opportunity to write a book. <laughs> and I was looking, and I looked around at all the employees of Bigger Pockets at the time, there was probably about 20, 25. And not a single person at that company wrote for the blog except for Scott. And I was like, mm. okay, I like to write. Might as well get my thoughts on paper. Then eventually, I mean, as you're writing a blog, it kind of formulates into a book anyway. I mean, a book is really just a bunch of blog posts co- mm. put together cohesively. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, so that was kind of like it, right? As I got really into writing for the blog, I did that for over two years without any payment, without anything at all. And then I got the opportunity to write a book after, you know, completing a couple, two or three house hacks and, uh, and, and kind of became known as like the subject matter expert on house hacking. That's awesome. And again, congrats there. House hacking is a, it's become a common trend really around our office, right? Certainly in the real estate industry in general, I think it's an awesome way for young people uh, or, or people that are just getting into real estate to get started in their careers. And, you know, here in our office, we do have uh, a lot of 
young, really bright people that are, you know, kind of trying to buy their first house. And, and so they've kind of discovered this as an idea to not only buy their first house, but also start their investing career. So it's kind of, it's spread like wildfire amongst the upright employee base here. And, you know, it's, it's really cool to see. And it's, uh, I've actually tried to convince my wife to do a house hack, but she's, uh, she doesn't love the idea of us moving our two young kids into a duplex and having them raise hell and have, you know, angry neighbors all the time. But I'm pretty keen on the idea as well. So along those lines, Craig, can you tell us basically just what the fundamentals are of house hacking, right? Like how you eventually got into it and then, you know, what are the the nuts and bolts of it? Yeah. So when I was first doing my research on real estate investing, it kind of seemed like the the sh- the no-brainer way to get started, right? Especially because at the time I was I was single guy, like I was pretty flexible, didn't have a lot of stuff. So moving wasn't really a big concern for me. And so, you know, the whole idea is that you're going to buy a property with a low percent down. And the way that you buy that with, you know, three to 5% down is you need to live in it. And so depending on your market and where you're listening to this, sometimes, you know, in cheaper markets, a duplex, a triplex or a quad might work really well. In more expensive markets like Denver, where I started, a duplex, you're not going to like find a duplex or a triplex and rent it out in cash flow. You know, you got to get a little bit more creative, especially these days with higher interest rates and higher prices. And so, you know, you got to find a single family home and do, you know, co-living or rent by the room. You got to find a place, you know, where you can maybe that's got a basement. You can Airbnb the basement and rent out the other two rooms that you're living in. You know, you got to get really creative with where you're at if you're in a more expensive market. But the whole idea and like the basic fundamental of it is that you are making income off of the place that you are living. Craig, question for you on that side too. So we won't turn this into a full-on house hacking podcast. I know there's plenty of those out there, especially ones that you've recorded. But the people that are listening to this show might be, you know, a couple deals into their career. Some of them might be doing, you know, 20, 30, 40 deals, depending on on the listener. What kind of advice do you have to someone who has maybe completed baby step number one? They've done a house hack or maybe two. How do they transition if they want to out into a more traditional real estate investing type career? That's a great question. The first thing you have to do is you got to pick a market, I would say. Uh, and if, if scaling is really tough in your market, I find that, you know, maybe scaling in a more expensive market, like if you're living in a San Diego or San Francisco or something like that, like it might be tough to scale in that area. And so you got to pick maybe a C or a D market. And by C or D, I mean like the price point is 100 to 200 grand, right? And so then you can start really stacking units. And I think that's kind of where a lot of scale comes in and just, and there's not like one market's better than the other. Uh, you just got to find the right team in that market. And then, you know, then you can start burring, right? I think burring is a really good way to scale. And I think you can do that a lot easier in cheaper markets because, you know, if you're buying a $100,000 house to to get 20% equity in the property, you just got to increase that price 20000 But in a $500,000 house, you need, now need to increase that property's value by 100000 That's a massive, massive difference. And so I find that burrs work better in cheaper markets. And so that's how I would go about scaling if you want to stay in that like, you know, single, like the one to four unit asset class. And have you held all of your units, Craig? I know you mentioned between you and your wife, you've completed eight house hacks. Have you just at that point moved out of the home, gone on to the next house hack and just put a new tenant in to backfill yourself? Yeah, I've only sold one. That was a disaster. Okay. <laughs> um, yep. Everything else, I, my, 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 my thesis on every house is I want to hold on to it forever because that's where wealth comes from. I, I think there's a lot of money lost. People don't talk about this much. And you know, there's a lot of wealth lost in the transaction, 
right? You got to pay realtors. I'm a realtor. I know. You got to pay <laughs> lenders. You guys are lenders. You know. Uh, and so there's like lots of things that go wrong. But if you just hold a property, it's boring. But it makes you a lot more money than I think than if you're trying to wheel and deal and always trying to like be super efficient with it. And that's a that's a topic that a lot of people are mentioning right now too. Is they're like home prices are high. I have a ton of equity in my house. I need to cash in on this 300k equity that I that I have in my house I bought 10 years ago, and I'm going to be able to roll it into something else. And like to your point, Craig, the thing they got to stop and think is like you can't go just recreate that 300k of equity in that next house because rates are higher, the transaction costs, all these additional things. So. I'm coming in the same boat. I, I haven't sold a property yet. I've only acquired them. I'm sure I'll run into a scenario where I have to let one go. But I agree. I think that philosophy makes a ton of sense. And for the people that are out there flipping or building, obviously, it's a different strategy. But I, th- I think the hold makes a ton of sense in right now's environment, for sure. Yeah, I because we work with clients across the entire spectrum of rental portfolio, rehabbing, developing, I try to seek understanding and in get a good grasp on what somebody's business is and why and why they like it. I'm the same way though. For me, me personally, the the stacking rentals just is is what I gravitate to. And even I look at, you know, my personal residence, right? And and actually this is a good topic for you, Craig, and and I don't want to get too far ahead here because I I do want to chat about it. But I look at my personal residence and my wife and I are looking for a new home and the plan was, hey, let's sell it and use all the equity and dump it into the next house. And I'm like why? I have like a 4% rate on my current home. Why trade that for a, an eight, you know, and, and just dump all that equity into the new house? And like, I'll just go get a three or 5% down loan on the new house and I'll get a HELOC on my current residence and use that and leverage it and put a tenant in there and cash flow it. And that's, that's what I'm going to do. It just makes so much more sense versus just like trading the asset that I have. I totally agree yeah. with that. Yeah, I, I just think and, – and people also – like you also think about the time it takes to like now you have to go find a deal and you have to go do X, Y, and Z just so you can be using your equity more efficiently. Yeah. No, thanks. Like I'm going to let that yeah. thing sit. I'll, I'll get a HELOC that way and the HELOCs are good because you're only going to pay for that if you're using it. And so now you've got liquidity in the event that an opportunity does come that you can't pass up. But you're not like just paying for this refinance loan. You're not paying – you're not paying to have cash sit in your bank account for too long. Craig, this this next topic it's kind of like a combination of of two together. So when when we talked last, you mentioned how you kind of subscribe to this small but mighty type of real estate investing strategy. You don't necessarily have to own a hundred units or a thousand units to reach financial independence or financial freedom. And then you taught me something new on the accelerated debt paydown strategy and how to leverage a HELOC. We only got the tip of the conversation started uh, a couple weeks back, but I'm curious, can you read us in a little bit more? to what that strategy is that you and your team are deploying and then how that kind of fits hand in hand with this, like, I don't need to own 100 units myth, I'll say. Yeah. So I'll say this. is my, my team's not deploying it that much because most of the people on my team and most of our clients are still in build phase, right? If you're trying to acquire and scale and you're trying to get to like four, five, six units or whatever, like you need to kind of just keep house hacking or, or kind of be in the stuff that we talked about previously. Once you kind of look at your portfolio, and you're like, you know what? I think that if I actually like, let's just say you're bringing in $20,000 in rents and you got $14,000 in mortgage payments, right? And you're saying, well, if I paid off that $14,000, now I've got $20,000 in rents with the same amount of work and the same amount of properties and the same amount of everything else. Like, would that be a way for me to get to $20,000? Would that be more fun and easier for me? And would that give me the life that I want? Or do I need to get 100 units to get 
instead of saying 20,000, right? Mm. And so, you know, you kind of ask yourself that. I think a lot of people kind of jump to like, I need 100 units to get to 20,000. But the kind of the converse, the opposite side of that is, well, what if you just paid off all that debt? And so there's a way out there called the accelerated debt pay down. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Kwok brothers, uh, but Sam Kwok, who is one of the Kwok brothers, a good friend of mine, he kind of like, I feel like he's the one that really made this strategy somewhat popular. And so the idea here is that you take a HELOC out on your house, right? Let's say ideally your primary residence because that's going to get you the best loan to value. So let's say you got a million dollar house. You got a $600,000 mortgage on it. So you had a $400,000 of potential equity. A bank will lend on about 90% of that. And so let's say you get a $300,000 HELOC now. That rate might be at 10, 11, 12%, way higher than any of your other mortgages. But let me tell you this, is that you think you're paying 4% on your mortgage, David, right? But when did you buy that house? 2017. 2017. Okay, so you're about six, maybe six and a half years in. So you're probably getting a little bit more towards like you're paying more principal down mm-hmm. than interest. But you, even either still, you're still paying more interest than principal. And in that first year, right, you weren't paying 4% interest. You were probably paying like 50, 60, 70% interest in that first year. And then finally, if you make it all the way to year 29, now you're paying next to nothing in interest. And that's where it kind of all evens out. But banks aren't stupid. You guys are a bank, right? You, you, you people want to refinance after year seven or eight so that they can get back on that schedule of paying an insane amount of interest. And so what this line of credit does is line of credits are, 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 are structured differently. It's not like the amortized mortgage where you're paying principal and interest. You're basically just paying interest only on the debt pay down that you have. And so what you do is you take your HELOC, you pay off a large portion of your mortgage. Let's say you had a $600,000 mortgage, David, and you take this $300,000 HELOC, you apply the $300,000 to it. So now instead of being in year six of your mortgage, you're now in year 20. And now every month you're paying a lot more principal than interest because you just fast forward through your amortization schedule that much. But then you're saying, oh wait, but you're paying 12% over here on your on your HELOC, right? So that well, one, that is less than what you'd be paying for your mortgage. Right. Number two is actually you want to have as little cash in your bank account as possible. And so you're actually putting the cash that you have in your bank accounts into that HELOC. So you're now spending like your balance on your HELOC is very, very low for most of the month. And you want to draw down on little as that HELOC as possible throughout the course of the month, because the way the HELOC is calculated will be based on like average daily balance. So if that if you if you've got a three hundred thousand dollar balance on one day, and then you can pay off 150 of it or whatever's in your bank account. Now you're really only paying 150 of that balance for however many days, right? Um, and you kind of use your HELOC as as the checking account. Does that make sense? I tried to do that as best as I could. It does. Makes a ton of sense. So you're you're leveraging a what seems to be a higher rate HELOC and just by using the per DM calculation effectively, right? Between your HELOC and what your mortgage would require. You're, you're essentially doing interest arbitrage between the two vehicles. Mm-hmm. Is that close? Yeah, essentially. But you're just you're just trying to get that. You're just trying to get to like year 20 of your mortgage at, as fast as possible. And then you use the cash in your bank account. You use like anytime you need cash for your personal expenses, you draw down from the HELOC. And you try to keep that HELOC as low as possible, except for when you need it. And so it might only be one day a month. Like you draw from the HELOC when you get, like right before you get paid, your expenses go out. And then once you get paid, you put it back into the HELOC. So it's just one day of balance. Interesting. So how have you, 
How have you guys seen this play out, Craig, with with your portfolio so far? Are you guys six months into this strategy? Are you one year? Are you one month? Uh, walk us through how that's kind of impacted you guys, and you've seen the the math come to life a little bit. Yeah. So so us personally, we're just a couple months in, uh, and so you know we're we're chunking out our mortgages pretty quickly. I'll speak to a friend of mine who kind of introduced me to this, and she started this in April. And by the time July rolled around, so like literally three months, she had paid off one house fully, $121,000, plus her car, which was fifteen dollars she, she paid off like $150,000 in debt. And she's like, I can't explain the math. It just works, right? Uh, because it's like when you really focus on that, I think it's a way – you're focusing on, on, on like – you're going like kind of almost like against the grain, right? It's a small but mighty Chad Carson kind of like kind of coined yeah. that. I think it's a, I think that's what act people actually want, and they get caught up in comparing themselves to others and all that kind of stuff. Where they want the units and all that. The units don't matter. Would you rather have? Yeah. Would you rather have a thousand units cash flowing you a hundred bucks, or would you rather have ten units cash flowing you a thousand? Right. Like I'd rather, I'd rather have ten cash flowing me a thousand all day. Very cool. And and the the mortgage pay down, right? So like, let's say. Uh, I'm looking into the nuts and bolts of this thing, right? Because I'm super fascinated by it. I got this shiny new HELOC that I'm going to have, and I don't, I'm trying to figure out where to apply it. So are you typically applying that to personal residents first, right? Taking kind of mortgage B and paying off mortgage A to reduce that that amortization schedule? Or are you taking that, actually applying it to the properties in your rental portfolio? So there's like there's a calculation that you can kind of figure out, but it's somewhat complicated of – it's like you take your monthly obligation and you divide it by your total balance and you kind of, and whatever number is the highest is what you want to pay down first. However, if you want to just kind of simplify it, you can just go to like, what's your highest interest rate mortgage. Got it. Right. That's right. And, and like, cause that coupled with like, what is the most, or like the earliest mortgage that you've got, right? It's like your most frequent one because you're going to pay the most interest on your, uh, your newest mortgages. And so you want to like pay off – like the most efficient way to do it would be to pay off your newest mortgage until you're further in that amortization schedule where you're like the oldest mortgage and then you go to the next one and you kind of just keep mm. – that's the most efficient way. But some people like to do like the snowball or the whatever, the snow avalanche approach. Yeah. And if we wanted to find out more specific about this strategy, is this in your book uh, or do you have some some online published material about this? So I'm not the guy that is like the expert expert at this. Um, I would go look up the Kwok brothers, Sam Kwok and Daniel Kwok. They're great, great people, and he's got whole videos and all this stuff on that. So I'm gonna I'm gonna send it over to them and let them really explain cool. it to you. Love it. So Craig, you also talk about how, in addition to the house hacking and acquiring some rental properties through some other means, you've taken a passion and found a career in being an investor friendly agent. So much so that you now lead an EXP team investor-friendly agents, retry to train them on how to handle business in a way that is attractive to investors, but also advantageous to investors. So can you give us the nuts and bolts of like, first, how, what kind of traits or characteristics did you find necessary to become successful as an investor-friendly agent? And then what is required to run a team of people that kind of marches to the beat of that same drum? Totally. So Number one, to be an agent in general, you need to like to talk to people. You need to like to be around people. So that's number one is like I'm, I'm somewhat extroverted. I like to help people. And I like to be around and talk to people. Number two is you need to have some sort of influence, right? How do you have influence? I think doing it yourself is a good way. 
uh, showing the track record. Obviously, like the book helps and the podcast helps and all that stuff helps. But like, if you can just start producing some sort of content to be a leader in the space and just to refi- just honestly do it for yourself to just refine your knowledge and become eloquent. Now, you know, you when you talk to somebody, you can eloquently state, hey, this is why you need to do this. These are the areas that are the best. These are the rents you're going to get. This is the mortgage. And people are like, yeah, I'm going to go with you. Of course, I'm going to go with you because you know everything. Mm-hmm. You can you can you can talk to me, uh, someone that doesn't know anything about real estate. You can explain it to me in very layman's terms, and you're very like confident. And you've done it before. And you've done it hundreds of times. And so, like, you know, I think speaking with the confidence that you've done this hundreds of times is really helpful. And the fact of the matter is, is like when someone joins our team, they now have done it hundreds of times because they've got a whole team right. backing them that has. And so I always tell them, like, you need to talk like you've done this 150 times, 200, 300, 400 times, because we have. And so, like, in any question that comes up that you don't know, you just say, ah, you know, I'm not too short on that right now, but, like, I'm going to ask, you know, ask my guy, and I'm going to get back to you ASAP. And no one yep. cares, like, no one cares that you, you don't know the answer as long as you get back to him. Craig, the other the other thing I've noticed on the investor-friendly agent side of things, so I've... I've had a couple different agents that I worked with prior to me getting my license uh, in Ohio. And the thing that I found with the investor I really, or the agents I really liked working with is they're very patient with me, knowing that I'm an investor trying to get the best deal. So I've worked with some real estate agents that are, you know, I'm like, hey, I kind of want to lowball this offer and here's my rationale and here's what I'm trying to do. And they immediately look at that as like a negative because they're like, man, my commission's going down. This guy's just going to lowball every, every house he sees. We're not going to get a deal done. It's like finding that trust between the realtor and the investor. You kind of have to like vet each other out to know like, okay, if you're the real deal and I'm the real deal, we're going to agree on what your investment criteria is and we're going to go execute. But I think if you don't have that trust, um, again, I've had realtors that have, I think, gotten impatient with me because they were like, they didn't understand what I was trying to do. They were just so used to working with retail buyers who were willing to go at asking price and willing to do all these different things. So can you speak to that a little bit? Do you, do you notice that in the people on your team or even with your personal experience and kind of how that differs? Yeah, so that's interesting. So so in Denver, right, we work with a lot of house hackers. And the, the thing with house hackers is that time is what you're losing the most of. And so the every month you're not in a house hack is you're losing an insane amount of money. And so yep. uh, we help our house hackers understand that and just kind of say, hey, like, honestly, it doesn't matter when you're doing a buy and hold whether you purchase the thing at, at, at 500 or at 460, it's not going to matter. Uh, it's a hundred, 200 bucks a month on difference. And like our numbers are way bigger than that. Right. And so, but, but right. You, and I've done this analysis of like, I did a blog post on this where, okay, like person a buys a house every year for 10 years, doesn't get a, a great deal. Just gets like a ad asking, maybe even a little bit above just like run of the mill deal. Let's call it like a B or a C but they do one a year for 10 years. The other person gets one deal every 18 months, but it's like a home run deal, right? They get it at like, you know, 20, 80% of asking really good. Person A has over a million dollars higher net worth than person B because they've got six more or four more houses than them do at the end, that they do at the end of 10 mm-hmm. years. And so I think uh, depending on your market, right, it's really important to kind of know the difference and depending on your strategy. And so um, I would say, that I do have some, I've had people come to me and submit lowball offers. And I'll just say, look, like, I'll make a phone call for you. I can call an agent, but I'm not going to write an offer that's low without talking to the mm, agent first. 100%. And so I'm going right. to say, I'm going to call the agent and I'm going to present the offer verbally. And it, that takes me 30 seconds or 45 seconds. 
Right. And if they're going to, if they're, if they're cool with it, I will write you the offer. But if not, then I'm just going to say no and we'll keep looking. And so that's kind of how I do that. I love that. Yeah, no, that's, that's perfect. I think that's a type of communication that I've seen a lot of realtors miss on, right? It's they're, they're, uh, they're used to a certain style. They're used to a certain cadence. They want to stick to that. So working with investors, they sometimes, you know, we get, we got a different agenda, different things we're trying to accomplish. So I love to hear that breakdown for anything. That's super helpful. How have you seen being a realtor and especially an investor friendly realtor? How has that propelled your core investment business? So you obviously get to represent yourself in transactions. You might be able to do more creative deal structures because of that. How is how has that kind of put you a leg up in your goal of reaching financial independence via real estate? Yeah. So uh, the the reason why I got my license in the first place was just to represent myself, and so that. It was nice, right? Again, we were at a little bit of a higher price point in the Denver market, but I was getting ten or fifteen thousand at every closing. So that mm. that turns my, you know, five percent down into two and a half, three, two and a half, three percent down. So, you know, that that's tremendous. That was number one. Number two is now I I negotiate, you know, a hundred something deals a year. When it comes to doing my own deal, I get really good at negotiating and I get <laughs> I mean I know exactly like where the market's at, what sellers are willing to give on, what they aren't. And so it's just like, you know, perfecting your craft, just like, I don't know, maybe this is a bad example, maybe it's not, but like a chef will probably make his, his family a really good meal, like his wife, a really good meal on her birthday or their anniversary, right? Because he's cooked hundreds or thousands of meals. Well, same thing kind of works with your, you know, with your real estate stuff. And then of course, um, when someone's looking to sell a house, I mean, we get first dibs. I've got a, I got a, I got a seller right now that subject to deal two and a half percent that I'm looking to potentially take on because I'm like, I don't know how I can how I can pass this one up, right? And so we yeah. kind of get first dibs at those deals as well. So Craig, you've, you've got awesome. several irons in, in different fires, right? And each one of those different passions, I would imagine, requires a certain amount of your time. So what does that look like for you currently and moving forward? Like where's the majority of your time going to be spent? What are your core businesses going to be moving forward? Yeah, so right now the majority of my time is is, is running the agent team, and, um, and even, you know, even helping some clients out myself personally. Uh, so that's kind of where most of the time is. Um, we've got this property management company that we're starting. I've got kind of like a boots on the ground guy for that. So I'm still dealing a little bit as we get started, I'm dealing with the owners directly, but eventually I'll pass that on. Um, and that's most of my time. I mean, all my rental properties are property managed, so I don't really spend much time in that. The book sales are fairly automatic, most of my, like, I'm, I'm quite busy right now. I'm not lying, right? We're starting this property management company. Uh, real estate was down this year. So I'm like really trying to get the team honed in to a point now where I actually even made some mistakes with my real estate team earlier in the year to now I need to like even do a couple deals myself to like catch us back up on the year. I'm not afraid to get my hands dirty. Uh, not afraid to get busy if I have to, but uh, where I'd like to be ideally is is spending, you know, a few hours a week on the team and then like maybe an hour or two a week in the property management company and then look at build the next thing. Yeah, Craig, this the property management business, kind of the last topic I really want to hit on with you. When we talked last, you mentioned it's it's uh, centered around co-living, uh, maybe somewhat similar to like the pad split model for the listeners that are familiar with that. Give us a little bit of a rundown of what that business model looks like and also what steered you into that direction. Obviously, it's a style of investing that's been around for a minute, but I think it's getting especially popular with the affordability crisis that's happening. People need an affordable place to live and this co-living pad split type model offers that. So Give us a rundown there if you don't mind. Yeah, so I've been doing this in Denver since 2018, right, just for myself. And the strategy just works because in Denver, in, in any big city, like affordability is a massive problem. 
so we're giving people very high quality, like beautiful places to live for 800, 900,000 bucks a month, right? Like you can get a really crummy studio for 13, 1400 bucks a month in Denver, right? And so we're giving these places a house with a yard. Like the only, the only kind of catch is that you might have to share the kitchen with somebody else, right? You know, that, that is, so, so that's kind of like the problem we're solving, which I like because we're solving a bigger problem that the city of Denver and whatever jurisdiction you're in is going to be happy with. So they're going to put rules in your favor, right? Uh, in the past year or so, or the last two years, like short-term rentals have really been popping off, but it does the opposite of what the government wants, right? It, it makes sure. affordability, the, their city harder to afford. People are not going to move there. They're not going to pay taxes if they don't live there. And the city doesn't want that, right? And so we're getting people hopefully to move to Denver to be able to pay taxes, so, the Den- so Denver's on board, right? That was number one. Hmm. Number two is it gives these people a great place to live. Number three is it gives our investors a higher return on investment. In Denver, like the, the, the property price is higher. But because we can make a, you know, a seven, six to seven, maybe even eight bedroom home is going to run in a decent area is going to run between six and 700 grand. And so the mortgage payment on that is going to be around five at this point in time, as of this recording, around five grand. And we can get about 900 to 1,000 bucks a room. So you do that math, right? You're looking, even on, the, on, a, on a lower end, you're looking at $6,300 a month, nine times seven, on a $5,000 mortgage payment, right? Like that's really good for a market that appreciates the way Denver does. Very cool. And then what, what, what kind of implications does, because I'm always curious about the pad split model. I've seen some ways that it's done where, you know, even like the dining room and the living room is kind of chopped up into bedrooms. How how far down that path um, is your business kind of centered around or is there more so just like a rent by the room model? Can you give us a rundown of what the property makeup looks like? Yeah, so we want to give these people like a really, really amazing place to live. Uh, and so we decorate the like the kitchen if there's a dining area and then a common like a common area, living area kind of thing. Yep. Uh, we do not do TVs because that causes problems. But, you know, like, and it kind of depends on like the vibe of the neighborhood and like what's around, right? So we got one that's up getting uploaded right now. That's like a coffee shop. We're doing a coffee shop vibe. So like got some tables in there. We got like an espresso machine. We got like all the kind of things to make it feel kind of like a coffee shop, right? And so that like when someone walks in there, you kind of want to feel like you want them to get like kind of like the, the warm and fuzzies, right? You want them to want to live there. Another thing is like, so yeah, we theme all of our houses. So uh, we've got another one that's kind of out towards the mountains into the foothills uh, near Red Rocks Amphitheater, which is like a really common, a really popular like music venue. And so uh, this one, we're still debating, but we're either going to do some sort of like music thing with Red Rocks or kind of like an outdoorsy thing where like, you know, you get some, you know, some dirt bike stands and you get some, you know, a place where people can throw their like trail running gear and all that stuff. And so you kind of like think about the extra things hmm. and people will actually want to live there and you start getting people of like personalities and when like personalities are together, they become friends and friends don't fight as much yeah. as people that aren't <laughs> friends. So yeah, that's kind of where we're very at. Very cool and uh, very unique business model, but uh sounds like it's well thought <laughs> out and sounds like it's going well for you. Well, it's just starting. But uh, I, I, I'm pretty confident that it's going to work because it's, it's a huge need, uh, I think, everywhere. And, and, I, and I like that. And I'm not like mad when there's another rent by room property manager that's trying to also get on board. Like I'm trying to we're trying to solve the bigger problem at hand, which is the affordability. Right. Yeah. Cool. I love it. 
Craig, really appreciate you coming on today. Um, I think there is something for everyone on this podcast, right? So whether you're just getting started in real estate, trying to learn how to get in via house hacking, uh, a little bit more master class in the accelerated pay down uh, that we talked about, and then all the way through to the co-living stuff, which I think, again, a little bit more of a hot button today. It's a, it's a new strategy that maybe some people haven't considered yet. Um, so again, just really appreciate your wealth of knowledge and you sharing with us. And if you wouldn't mind, just can you tell the listeners where they can learn more about you, get in touch, access your book, um, anything else that you'd like to share? For sure. Yeah. I mean, you can just reach out to me on, um, on the Fi guy. If you know, if you want to see our team, the Fi team and, uh, yeah, just shoot me a DM on Instagram. As long as you're a real person, I will message you. I'll likely respond back and, um, that's it. Very cool. Well, I will, uh, go ahead and sign us off here. So, for Craig Curlop, for Brendan Bennett, I'm David Dugan. Thank you for tuning in to Real Estate Investing Unscripted. And if you like what you heard today, make sure to like and subscribe across all platforms. And uh, thanks. We'll see everybody next time. Thank you, Craig. That was awesome. Thank you. Thank you.